1: post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today the hits keep coming oh what a judgy and the home of yankees baseball is wfan way up in the bleachers the fan on 1019 fm and always live on the free odyssey app
0: to McCartan in the morning here on the fan in New York City on the line live right now Rick Laughlin author of a history of the Nets from Teaneck to Brooklyn joins us right here live on the fan Rick thanks for joining us
1: uh thanks for having me
0: all right let us get right into this okay so um why was it important for you to chronicle the history of the team that we know now as the Brooklyn Nets
1: look i mean this is a franchise and i know that there's been a lot of tension on on the new york yankees and even the new york mets bringing back old timers day Uh, but this is a franchise in the brooklyn nets now that have really shunned and run away from their history and you know i know danielle you've had an opportunity to look through the book in the early chapters i mean it's incredible when you go back to 1967, how this franchise actually began. Mm -hmm. And I had the opportunity to speak to Herb Turetsky, who was the scorekeeper for the first ever game at the Teaneck Armory for the New Jersey Americans. And who would have known that he would basically be keeping score for that game just as a favor for a friend and be the scorekeeper for 54 years, carrying the the team through many, many moves to many different venues from New Jersey, out to Long Island. Mm -hmm back to New Jersey, and then eventually, of course, to Brooklyn. Uh, Just an incredible story and one that I felt like needed to be told.
0: You know, Rick, you went way back to the beginning, to Teaneck. What was the most difficult part in your research in in creating this?
1: I would probably say those early years, you know, from 1967 uh, through the ABA years. You know, I leaned heavily on uh, Herb, who was a a team historian, obviously saw the entire course of the franchise starting – humble beginnings basically in a glorified gymnasium in Teaneck and then to what we see today a billion dollar asset in brooklyn competing for you know with the new york knicks to, to get the most attention in the new york market it's just incredible when you look at how the new york knicks were basically the bigger brother in this new york basketball landscape at every step of the way trying to give the nets and at the time the new jersey americans such problems Arthur Brown, who was the first owner of the team, really wanted the team to be stationed in New York. And none of the venues that were within the state lines of New York, New York City, even Long Island, wanted to ruffle the feathers of the Knicks. And, uh, you know, Arthur Brown, really that first year when they were known as the New Jersey Americans, had to settle on the T-Neck Armory. And frankly, that amounted to a pit stop. They couldn't wait to get out of New Jersey to get New York on the chest of the uniforms. Mm -hmm. And they did that that second year when they moved to Nassau Coliseum. And basically, it's funny because history ends up repeating itself. I mean, I know the Nets had a prolonged stay from the early 80s up through about 2012 in New Jersey. But it seemed like those final few years in New Jersey, they couldn't wait to get out of there and get now to Brooklyn. So uh, history is a funny way of repeating itself. And I know that, again, the Nets have such a nomadic nomadic type of history, it's, it's even difficult to track the eight different arenas they played in. Yeah, that's
0: the word I wrote down in my notes. We're talking about Rick Laughlin for the author of A uh, History of the Nets from Teaneck to Brooklyn. Um, and this is my August selection for Danielle's WFM Book Club. Now, I, Rick, you know I'm a Bergen County native. I've driven past that Teaneck armory countless times in my life. I cannot imagine a professional basketball team calling it home.
1: It's incredible, and it you know the the nets have actually had pretty you know close ties to Bergen County. Whether that was they were practicing at Fairleigh Dickinson at TNEC, and you know uh, there's stories told in the book where they're basically sharing gym time and having a rotating schedule with you know let's say the women's volleyball team or whoever's using the facility at that time, and it became something that wasn't sustainable. That was when John Calipari uh, took over, so they bounced from Teaneck, uh from the FDU TNEC. Playing at Ramapo College, my alma then, mater.
0: I love that. Yeah. A little shout out in there. I had a little pride in that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, oddly enough, Fairleigh Dickinson uh, Madison, so Fairleigh Dickinson University is my alma mater. <laughs> and uh, wow, and, yeah, and and Kalapari. So when he took over, I mean, the Nets were even in in a, a stranger position because they were playing at ADP trucking facility where you had Nets players, coaches, any of the staff that were sharing locker rooms with truck drivers who were driving cross country. So imagine that. So that didn't last very long when John Calipari came in and tried to really set a new culture for that team and, and add legitimacy to the franchise. And he was responsible for ultimately building what was it, uh, 390 Murray Hill Parkway when the Nets had their facility at East Rutherford. So yeah, again, I know the Nets are ing- ingrained in Brooklyn at, the, at this point, but You know, they had very strong ties in Bergen County.
0: Yeah, you said at this point, uh, you know, you obviously are a historian of the team, clearly based on this book. Given their nomadic history, do do you think their stay in Brooklyn is going to be permanent, like forever? Uh,
1: I mean, if history teaches us anything, I mean, if you were to ask me where the Nets are going to be in five years, in ten years, I honestly could not give you a definitive answer that they're going to be in Brooklyn. I mean, you see recent reports that Joe Sy now, you know, the team hemorrhaging money, the Kevin Durant and the Kyrie Irving drama this entire summer and and look winning cures all if they're able to turn the course turn this ship around and get it back on course then you know all will be forgiven but I think you have a fan base and let's face it a fan base that is young right I mean if you're a fan of the Brook, quote-unquote Brooklyn Nets they're going to be celebrating their 10th year in that borough right now so there's a generation of Nets fans out there don't even remember the team being in New Jersey yeah. so um, if they're not successful with this current regime and with Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving and they have to start from scratch you know I don't know that this young generation of fans is is basically just Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving fans or they truly are Nets fans mm-hmm. so to answer your question Danielle I, I, I wish I had a better answer for you but I would not be surprised if in five or ten years the Nets have possibly changed another location and to another venue and to another host city.
0: On page, because I read every single word of of, of your your book there, Rick. On page 203, you talk about how the Barclays Center is, and this is a quote, in no way conducive to fans attending via car, thus discouraging longtime followers of the franchise from outside New York City from attending games. That includes me. I I, I identified with with that part there. Are New Jersey Nets fans justified in feeling abandoned by the team?
1: Yeah, and it's funny because you talk to any of the B- Brooklyn Dodgers fans that you know followed the team to Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. They say, "How could you even say that when it's only a 13, 14 fourteen-mile trek from where the Nets were playing at the time at the Meadowlands Izod Center to now Brooklyn?" Um, but it really is. It, it was a ball. It was a game changer for Net fans. I mean that that regime that was in there, Brett Yolmark, he really marketed strictly the Brooklyn brand. Really, mm-hmm. just cast aside any of the fans in New Jersey and Long Island. And when they moved there in 2012, it was almost the start and advent of a new franchise as opposed to trying to make this a almost a tri-state metropolitan area team. And I think that was one of the big marketing flaws when they moved to Brooklyn was you already had well-established Knicks fans that were living there. And, you know, people that wanted to follow the Nets maybe were from Long Island or New Jersey or other parts of the tri-state area didn't necessarily have this affinity or connection to Brooklyn, even though it was a viable business opportunity for Bruce Ratner and the four city enterprises. So I think the Nets are still frankly trying to build inroads and establish a consistent season ticket holder base in Brooklyn and very difficult thing to do, especially when you have noncommittal players as the faces of your franchise.
0: Right. we're talking about Rick Lachlan, owner and curator of netsinsider.com here on the fan. Um, I, 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 Love how you chronicled the misses of this team. Like, there was a real possibility of a guy named, oh, I don't know, Lou Alcindor, who could have suited up for the team that we know now as the Nets. Can you imagine a world where Kareem Abdul Jabbar becomes not only, not just a, a legendary Laker, but instead a legendary net? How would that have changed the trajectory of that team?
1: Uh, yeah exactly it's not it's almost like a bizarre universe that the fact that you know in that ABA year that George Mikan who of course was you know a well-known Hall of Fame player in the NBA at the time is the commissioner of the ABA and essentially had had a check in his pocket that could have brought the not only Alcindor to the Nets but been a, a representative of the ABA and who knows how that would have changed the course of ABA and NBA his, and Nets history I should say mm-hmm. and of course he said you know as a negotiating tact, let's wait for a follow-up meeting so we can sweeten the pot, so to speak. And that never happened. The Milwaukee Bucks basically offered uh, the sweeter deal at the time. And even though the Nets tried to counter and, and get back into the game late, uh, you know, Lou Alcindor, who Kareem, later known as Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, basically, you know, went with the team that wanted him and offered him the, the most aggressive deal. So it's just fascinating to see both how the ABA and the Nets' trajectory would have changed and even the Kobe Bryant drama before the I was going to bring that up, draft. too. I know. That's it, nuts.
0: It, I mean, that they were hot and heavy with Kobe Bryant, I learned through your book. and, and They had a, a meeting at the Radisson on Route 3 in Secaucus. I mean, and the Nets decided to go in a different direction. Are you kidding me?
1: and it's you know it just reflects that error of the team where you had 8 yet the Scaulkus 7 with really eight owners the eighth was silent and it was they couldn't get on the same page about anything whether it was remaining as the New Jersey Yet yeah, Nets they had a proposed name change to the Swamp Dragons yeah. and they became the only team that vote, every other team voted for that name change and the Nets in the end voted against themselves because they couldn't agree because of other you know political forces you know governor Chris Christie uh governor uh, Christy Whitman at the time really didn't love that name change and neither did David Stern so basically from those that those forces the Nets voted that name change down and and the same thing happened in that situation so I think that ultimately the Nets just had a very disjointed ownership situation that created a lot a lot of headaches at the time
0: and cope from Kobe Bryant more most recently back to Julius Irving I mean ownership knew that he was, as you write in your book, A History of the Nets from Teaneck to Brooklyn. Ownership knew that he was a cultural icon and a trendsetter all wrapped into one. They gave up a ton to get Julius Irving, and yet three years later, he's playing his home games in Philadelphia. If you look now back, uh, Rick, at at this, was there an inroads? Was there a way that they could have kept Julius Irving as a net?
1: And and whether it's the Kobe Bryant drama that we mentioned as far as, you know, oh, he's an 18-year-old kid and there's not a great track record of – of young guys that have come from high school to the NBA that aren't at the power forward or center position. Uh, you know, the same can be said of the opposite. I think that think what happened with George Mikan and when he was basically ousted as the ABA commissioner after mishandling Lou Cinder. I think you saw a situation where the Nets were embroiled in this very messy legal dispute with the Atlanta Hawks, with the Virginia Squires, that all these teams basically trying to say that they had the rights to Julius Irving. And in the, at the end, it seemed as though the ABA, they, they lost out on Lou Cinder to the NBA, and they would just refuse to let Dr. J get out of the league. And I think that was one of the best things that could have happened for the league because the Nets were a top media market being in New York. And I think the hope was for Julius Irving to be the poster child of the league, which he was at the time and you know was synonymous with ABA greatness, but also that he could help revive the league. And I think he did, as you mentioned in those three seasons, as much as he could – and unfortunately, the you know because of a slew of bad business decisions, I mean, the ABA didn't even mark, it didn't even trademark that red, white, and blue ball, mm-hmm. if you could imagine, which was their signature. They they made a, a bunch of bad business decisions, and ultimately didn't have the television contracts and the media exposure that the NBA did. So they ultimately had to merge. But I think that at the end of the day, you know, having Do- Dr. J on that ABA championship team, the second of in his three years that he was there, seventy four and seventy six what should have been a a championship celebration and possibly rolling into an NBA, uh, you know, pursuit of an NBA championship, all of a sudden was the the team was in such bad financial straits, they had to sell off all their big contracts, including Dr. J, and they offer him to the Knicks. The Knicks turned down that deal, and he ultimately lands in Philadelphia. So it was just for Nets fans that I had the opportunity to speak to that lived through that at the time, it, it was really like... Mets fans that lived through, you know, trading Tom Seaver was just a devastating point for the franchise.
0: Author Rick Lachlan joins us on the fan. I think my favorite part of the entire book, A History of the Nets from Teaneck to Brooklyn, was the pages where you chronicled the, the, the death and the impact of uh, Drazen Petrovic. I mean, it actually brought tears to my eyes.
1: It's such, and, and you know, again, it's you. you talk about Drazen Petrovic in, in certain areas of this country, and certainly in Europe. And I mean, it's still there's not a dry eye in the house. I mean, what he did to change the game at that time. I mean, we've seen such an influx of European players since that point. And he was really, the, you talk about Julius Irving as the poster child in the ABA. Well, what Drazen Petrovic was able to do, I mean, playing, you imagine in the 90s NBA, the physicality and to be able to be not only a top shooter but be an all-around player, I mean, was just absolutely tremendous. And Kenny Anderson talks about just that tireless work ethic and you know being the first one in the gym, the last one out and setting the tone Having, you know, a player like that, losing him in free agency or a trade is bad enough, but having a, a tragic event like had happened uh, in the June of that year is just something that the Nets really never recovered from. And that, that core that included Petrovic, Derek Coleman, and Kenny Anderson, really never we never as fans got to see and they never got to realize their full potential uh, because obviously Drovin Petrovic left left far too soon.
0: Rick Lachlan, owner and curator of NetsInsider.com, is with us live here on The Fan. Um, we've got about three minutes, so I want to try to get three more in here, Rick. Um, you categorized each period of of time in Nets history. You titled the corresponding chapters based on what was going on at the time. If you could tack on another chapter for the Nets as they are right now, what would you call it?
1: Uh, I would call it, I, you know what I would call it? Call the bluff, because that yes. that's exactly what I felt like Joe Sy and Sean Marks and Steve Nash did with Kevin Durant. And even Kyrie Irving, to a degree. I mean, this this got so dysfunctional. Talk about trying to having to rewrite history. I mean, you know, things could have went sideways very quickly. And I think the Nets, look, they stayed the course. They had a very – they knew what they were getting involved with when they basically signed, you know, Kevin Durant and signed Kyrie Irving back in the summer of 2019 – that they were a package deal and any attempt not to show an undying commitment to Kyrie Irving was going to burn a bridge with Kevin Durant there were other factors of course as far as hirings and firings they made and you know you see reports that you know Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving were not fully on board with the Steve Nash hiring I will say you know I think Sean Marks has done a fantastic job I think ultimately the hiring a coach like Steve Nash with limited experience to manage these supersized egos may have been one of the weaker moves that he's made a general manager, because it's certainly hasn't panned out so far. But you look at everything that this Nets franchise has done for both Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant, bending over backwards mm-hmm. for any personnel moves. Kevin Durant, of course, not playing that first year in 2019 with the Achilles tendon injury sitting out that entire season, the Nets staying patient with him, staying patient with Kyrie Irving going AWOL, missing large chunks of games, bringing in James Harden, dealing with that mess. So it just seems like the Nets were bending and bending and bending, and finally now trying to wrangle back control from these two uh superstar players with even bigger egos. It just got as ugly as we saw this summer, but again, you hope when the dust settles that you know that when the twitter game ends and and all of a sudden the real games start that when the team starts winning, everything can be forgotten. But like I said, they were going down a very ugly path and a, a path to divorce, and the fact that they called the Kevin Durant bluff and they didn't. Uh, blink when he wanted them to blink just shows that you know they ultimately at the end of the day have tried to keep this team together and see what they can do for at least one last one last run with Kyrie Irving under contract for this year
0: I've got next author Rick Lachlan on the line here on the fan I've got about 10 seconds here I'm going to do two here real quickly you wrote that Vince Carter rightfully cemented his palace or his place I'm sorry on the Mount Rushmore of Nets legends who are the other three real quick
1: uh, as far as the legends, I would say it would be Kevin Durant at this point and and uh, Julius Irving. Uh, you know, uh, Jason Kidd, I should say. Jason Kidd and Julius Irving. Kevin Durant is there. If he remains with the Nets and can get them to or to win an NBA Finals, he would be my honorable mention, Kevin Durant.
0: All right, Rick, I got to tell you my last thing. I am disappointed in one thing about your book. You ready? Sure. You missed an integral part of Nets history. How can you mention Chris Humphreys and not Kim Kardashian? Oh,
1: well, you know what? I would have to write a whole nother book and maybe that could be history. of the Nets part two, the, the off the court antics, because believe me, there are a lot of them. Uh, so I'd have my hands full with that.
0: All right, Rick. Well, thanks for joining us live tonight here on the fan. I appreciate it.
1: Always fun. Thanks.
0: We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day.